Good afternoon. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. We'll bring in our panelists. Uh, we've got Scott Smelser with us today. How are you doing today, Scott? All right. Good to see you. And uh, Justin Dobbs is with us as well. How are you, Justin? Doing fine. Thank God. Good, Good to see you guys. Um, okay. Well, um, today I'll get our discussion kind of going with uh, the, our topic and where we kind of want to go and give us kind of introductory passage. Uh, and then we'll move on to some of the more kind of key passages that I want to look at. Um, but this afternoon, I want to spend our time talking about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, it's a pretty big topic, um, really important, really kind of one of the focal points of the scriptures. Uh, I heard someone one time say that if you wanted to divide the scriptures into kind of three different sections, you could do that by looking at maybe the first section of scripture, the Old Testament, and kind of title all of that as Jesus is coming soon. Um, and so like we're looking for Jesus, looking for his arrival, really all the way from Genesis chapter three, we're looking for this promise to be fulfilled. Then you get to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you could title all of those as Jesus is here. Um, he's, he's with us. He's dwelling with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And then post the gospels, beginning of Acts and, and on, Jesus is coming back. Um, and that's really how Acts chapter one starts off, where Jesus goes up and ascends into heaven, and then the angels appear to his disciples and say, what are you looking at? Jesus will come back in the same way that he left. You have work to do. <laughs> you know, he, he's coming back. Don't worry about that, but uh, he'll be back. Um, so I want to just discuss this idea. There are a lot of different thoughts and debates and, and points that are drawn out and some misconceptions about the second coming of Jesus. And before we actually just kind of look at what the Bible says, I want to start actually by reading a passage in Hebrews chapter six um, to kind of give us a foundation to go off of, and then we'll look at some of the more specific ideas. So um, Hebrews chapter six comes in the context of um, the author wanting to describe the priesthood of Jesus. And at the end of Hebrews chapter five, he wants to start talking about how Jesus's priesthood is really... Uh, priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And that's kind of a complicated idea, a little bit difficult. And the author is frustrated because he can't talk about that. It's, it's a deep, hard concept that won't be understood by his readers. And so he kind of digresses in chapter six by saying, you need to get past these elementary principles. And so you can receive and move on to these more deep concepts like Jesus's priesthood. And he lists at the beginning of chapter six, these fundamental foundational principles of Christianity. It's interesting the things that make the list here, but in Hebrews six, verse one, it says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Those are two really foundational ideas. You need to start there with repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That's what all of Jesus's teaching basically was. That's what John's teaching before Jesus was. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so repentance and faith towards God, very foundational. In verse two, some more foundational things are instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. Um, I understand the instructions about washings as like baptism or purity, being purified in God. Um, the laying on of hands was a common thing in the first century. The apostles laying on their hands to give gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, which would have been very foundational for the first century Christians to understand. And then the last two things that he mentions in this list of elementary principles is the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Um, now, I read that just to point out that from the Hebrew author's perspective, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment summarized, I think, 
also accurately as the second coming of Jesus are supposed to be basic introductory level types of things. Um, these are things that are should be easy to understand. God isn't trying to confuse us about these, these events. He's given us what we need to know to understand what we need to know about this event, about what's gonna happen with the resurrection of the dead, what's gonna happen in the eternal judgment. And, and we can be fully equipped from God's word to understand these. So whenever you hear about the second coming, don't get intimidated um, and like, you know, afraid that you're going to be really overly confused. The Bible is, is fairly simple to understand what you need to understand about these topics. So I want to just throw that out there at the beginning of our discussion. Uh, so do you guys have anything you want to say about that before we start looking at some more specific texts about the second coming? I would just maybe say, say this, John, that uh, most of the Bible is um, it, it, it's it's for humble people, uh, and when we make things complicated, um, maybe we're we're trying to whittle on guys into the stick if that idiom passes passes correctly into other <laughs> other cultures. Um, so these things can get complicated, and they can be very profound and have far-reaching consequences. So when we say simple, we don't mean that they're not powerful or that they don't have uh, complex ideas in them, but God communicates on a level that that even simple people can understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good clarification. Certainly, there are some really important conclusions <laughs> that need to be drawn from what we're told about the second coming. But um, yeah. All right. So I really want to kind of hit three main passages. We'll probably go to some other ones just to make some some other points as well. There, there's quite a lot of content about the second coming of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, but I want to hit primarily just three, and um, if I can, I want to just try to read them, and we'll just notice some of the details about the second coming, and then maybe compare those with some misconceptions, um, and then uh, uh, kind of wrap up to this this uh, show by looking at, you know, why it's so important to know what's going to happen in the second coming. Um, so the first one is in Matthew chapter 25. Um uh, and I don't know, I'll just ask if one of you guys will read Matthew 25 um, in verse 31 and read through the end of the chapter. I can do that. Yeah. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right or the goats on the left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for i was hungry and you gave me food i was thirsty you gave me drink i was a stranger and you welcomed me i was naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me and the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked. 
and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, and you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Great. So um, maybe a familiar passage to some of our some of our listeners. Um, this is certainly a popular thing, one of the popular moments of Jesus's teaching. But we got this picture of the sheep and the goats and this kind of judgment scene that Jesus is, is uh, presenting here. And this is what's going to happen when the Son of Man returns. Um, that's how he kind of starts this off. But I just want to kind of look through the text and notice just some of like the facts about this return. Like, what does Jesus say is going to happen? So you guys want to pick out like just some of like the really basic factual things that will happen in this event. Everybody's going to be there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everyone's coming, right? So we have a couple of different times um, in verse 32, all of the nations will be gathered. So like, this is an all-inclusive kind of event. Everyone's coming for this judgment scene. What are some of the other details? It, in verse 31, uh, there's there's going to be this throne that's set up from which he will judge all people. Yeah, yeah. So he's going to come in his glory. He's going to have the angels with him, and he's going to be sitting on this throne. The idea of the throne, I think, is like this judgment seat type of you know mm-hmm. place where he's going to be because that's clearly what he's going to be doing here. Um, so we've got him coming back. He's, he's with his angels when he comes back. He's got his judgment throne that he's sitting on. Everyone is going to be there. And then what's he going to do with all the people that are there? He, he is going to function as shepherd and uh, separate people based on, on their actions. Yeah, yeah. And how many separations will there be? Uh, looks like just one. Like he's going to, you know, goats get over there and sheep over there. And Yeah, yeah. So okay. you got one, one separation, but two groups. That's Maybe I asked that question wrong. So there are two groups, two destinations that are going to be. Um, there's not somewhere in the middle or like a half sheep, half mm. goat or something like that. It's like you're either a goat or you're a sheep, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So you got two groups um, and those two groups are the righteous and they're given the kingdom or eternal life. Those are the two different terms that are used here in this passage and the wicked or the goats that are given eternal fire or eternal judgment um, there. So this is, this is kind of a bullet point list. You've got, he comes back, he's with his angels sitting on the throne. Everyone is there to be judged. They're going to one of two groups. One is the righteous that get eternal life. One is the wicked that get eternal judgment. Um, that's just, uh, there's more to this passage, but those are some of the foundational kind of facts about the second coming. Um, so we'll keep that in mind and kind of start comparing these to some other passages. Um, first, go ahead, Scott. Also, nobody spends any time uh here in this life after this judgment yeah two destinations are eternal life and eternal punishment yeah yeah and we'll notice that especially when we get to our third passage but yeah you can see that here as well it's not you know some stay on earth you're either going to eternal life or you're going to eternal judgment so okay um the next passage i want to look at is uh starting in first thessalonians 4 um and I'm probably, I'm not going to read all of this passage. Um, I'm just going to summarize the first part in chapter four and pick up reading in chapter five. Um, but the, the first part in First Thessalonians chapter four, the context begins in verse 13. 
And what Paul is going to start doing in this letter is addressing this misconception that's happening among the brethren, among the Christians that are at Thessalonica. And basically what the misconception is, is some of the Christians in the first century have died physically. And it looks to me like the Christians that are still alive are upset about that because they think that, oh, no, our brothers and sisters have missed it. You know, Jesus hasn't come back yet and they're dead. And Paul is going to explain like, no, Jesus is going to, you know, still bring those people back. They're going to be raised from the dead. And he says that they've fallen asleep, actually. And so some of the key verses in chapter four are like verse 15. Um, this do we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will descend from heaven with the cry and command and the voice of the archangel, sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, and so then he you know, says, encourage everyone with these words, like those who have died in Christ will still be at this gathering of all nations. I want to start reading in chapter five, verse one. So he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night nor of darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that we might, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So there are some other details that kind of get added into the mix here about like what's going to happen on this specific day. We skimmed over the ones in chapter four, but um, chapter four mentions again, the Lord descending, he's coming with the angels. It mentions also this trumpet that's going to be sounding. So it's this loud event that's going to draw all attention. And the all nations that were mentioned in Matthew 25 are not just all nations that are currently alive, but like everyone for all time, all the dead will be raised. Um, you can compare first Corinthians or first Thessalonians four um, with some other passages like in Acts, that it's not just the righteous that are going to be raised from the dead, but all people will be raised from the dead, um, both the wicked uh, as well. Um, Scott, did you have the passage for that? Uh, your mic is still muted, Scott. Let's read one passage from John chapter 5 on that. Yeah, yeah. So John chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this. This is John 5, 28. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to, I lost my spot, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. He said there's one hour coming in which everybody is raised from death, both the good and the evil. Yeah. So John 5 discusses everybody, the good and the evil that's dead. John 5 doesn't discuss the living. It discusses the dead. First Thessalonians, we have particularly the living Christians and the dead Christians. And don't worry about those dead Christians. They're coming up first yeah. before us live Christians. Yeah. So we're kind of rounding out this picture, 
not only are those that are living going to be gathered, but the dead are going to be gathered too. Um, so this is everyone for all of time coming to this event. Um, so that's just kind of summarizing a little bit in chapter four. I'll let you guys go through again and like, let's add some more facts. Like what are some of the other facts concerning this day that Paul reveals here in, in this section, the end of chapter four and beginning of five? He's not coming down to rule on earth. We are going to be, verse 17, caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like here in First Thessalonians 4, Jesus isn't even going to touch the earth. He's, he's going to be in the air and will be raised to meet him in the air. So that's kind of interesting. We'll hold on to that fact. Um, what else is said about this day? What's the, like, like, when is this day going to happen, according to what Paul says in chapter five? Yeah, it, it, time you're not ready, or maybe not time you're not ready, but just an unannounced time. You know, yeah. He compares it to a thief in the night. Uh, uh, thankfully, I've, I've never had my home broken into, uh, but occasionally in the nighttime, we do hear little bumps and scrapes, and my wife says, <gasps> And she won't go back to sleep until I get up and check it out. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, no one is, you know, honking their horn at us and blaring a trumpet and saying, I'm coming in and taking all your stuff. It just, they come in unannounced. And that yeah. seems to be the indication. Well, yeah. I'll break in between two and three in the morning on the 16th. Yeah. yeah. If you could yeah. have all your stuff gift wrapped for me, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's not a... Uh, uh, for announced time it's going to be unannounced unexpected it compares it to like labor pains it just it just happens it's like uh you know there may be some you know some things that you can be aware of but like you really don't know when it's going to happen it's going to happen sometime in the future right and so that's how this day is described um a future event that you can't really nail down the exact moment that it'll happen uh, go ahead Justin. And, and on that on that picture of labor pains uh in verse three he says they, they will not escape when, once once the baby starts to come you, like there's, you, there's not any stopping it yeah. uh and so this this is uh, an event that is inevitable it is yeah. a sure thing it will happen um so yes there there are labor pains and it's going to come upon you suddenly but once it happens there's not a yeah. oh well let me go and you know slow this down i've got some things to take care of first right you, you go yeah, good. Cool. All right. So we're, we're still rounding out this picture. One more passage I want to look at um, that will add kind of a different emphasis and give some more details about some things is in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, so um, one of you all read 2 Peter 3, verse 3 through 13. You said uh, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 13? Yep. Yeah. I can do that. Um, mine begins in the middle of a sentence. Um, it says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, and some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay. All right. So um, uh, some more details that are here. Again, I think Peter is following maybe a similar pattern as what Paul is in First Thessalonians. Paul is led to talk about the second coming of Jesus because of a misconception about the second coming. Um, and that misconception was, you know, oh, no, the dead Christians aren't going to get to come with us whenever Jesus returns. And Paul corrects that. There's this misconception here in Second Peter that's a little bit different, where in like verse three and four, people are starting to say, it's been a long time and God hasn't come back yet. <laughs> you know, where is he? Um, things are still the same. It's been the same for a long time. The world is still spinning. Like, is he even going to come back at all? Um, kind of thing and kind of like saying you know if he hasn't come yet that means he's not coming ever and peter's going to answer that of like maybe giving some reasons like here are some reasons why god hasn't come yet and maybe one of those big reasons is like in verse nine where he says the lord is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance so god hasn't come back yet because he wants to give every opportunity he can for people to come and repent um now there will come a day when God finally does come and we have that kind of final opportunity that's, you know, it's gone. You don't have that opportunity anymore to come to repentance. But in the meantime, God is giving every chance that he can um, for people to come here. Um, so with this passage in Second Peter, some repeated, uh, there are some repeated ideas, but what are some new kinds of facts and things that will happen according to what Peter says on this last day? The heavens and the earth will be burned up. Yeah, so um, in Matthew 25 and in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we're not really told what's going to happen to the world, to the earth. We're told what's going to happen to the people. They're going to be gathered. They're going to be judged. They're going to be separated. But Peter says when Jesus comes back, the heavens and the earth are going to be dissolved. They're going to be burned up. They're going to be destroyed. Um, so, like, Jesus isn't coming to, you know, uh, you, you know, make the earth his, like, dwelling place. He's coming to destroy it kind of thing um, that's here. Um, what else? Well, on, on that point, he does have plans for the heavens and earth. There's a new heavens and new earth um, that I'm not really sure what all that looks like. Um, but uh, he's going to destroy so that he can uh, remake, restore, um, you know, refresh. Uh, and so there's there's a promise being made there, perhaps like what was in Noah's day where a world was corrupt because of sin, and then God cleanses it with the flood. Uh, Noah and his family stepped out into a new world, if you would. Uh, to them, that was a new heavens and a new earth. 
Uh, and so what we're looking for is a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God yeah. has plans to, uh, to restore at that time. Yeah. So he's not just going to destroy everything. He's going to destroy everything and remake it into something better, a new dwelling place. And like, what exactly will that be? Not a whole lot of detail, but we at least know there's plans for something <laughs> somewhere for yeah. us to live uh, after, after Jesus deals with all of that, destroys those things. Um, Scott, go ahead. Yeah, I appreciate both of you expressing that we don't know exactly what that's going to be like. Uh, I've often pointed out when you look at the Jewish people and their reading of the Old Testament, what was their perception of the coming kingdom? It wasn't accurate. It was wrong. Yeah. And so I think we're, we're best served when we look at these texts just take what the text says and you know you're, for instance there's going to be a resurrected body first Corinthians 15 a spiritual body it will be resurrected won't be flesh and blood it'll be incorruptible what exactly will it be like well paul's you know <laughs> when you put, then you got to wait to see what comes up uh and so the text says that is going to be destroyed, burned up, and language from Isaiah, there'll be new habits in New York. And rather than have lots of arguments about somebody's opinion of exactly what that'll be like, let's just leave it for the text left. It. Mm -hmm. This is burned up, and uh, the, the, the new heavens, new work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Justin. Uh, maybe another thought, uh, something that's that's shown here, maybe it's not different than what we saw in Matthew 25, but there's an, there's an added element to it. Uh, in Matthew 25, Jesus is seen as the, the king, the shepherd king who is separating the sheep from the goats based off of, off of their actions. Did they respond to him? Um, did, they, they, did they act in the world uh, as Jesus is Lord? Uh, and so what we see here is that through this destruction, uh, an exposure is made uh, just as fire reveals the quality of the thing uh, this might look like gold but is it really you know it might look like steel but what is this actually and and fire has this uh, ability to uh, to purify um, to destroy but also to reveal the, the quality of this thing so it, it seems like that paul mentioned something like that in first corinthians 3 where he talks about um what, what's being revealed in his labor that on that day uh his his work with christians will be revealed you know are they hay are they wood are they straw or are they gold and silver uh so there's something there about this judgment that's going to show us what we really are mm -hmm. yeah good point yeah cool um so scott go ahead i'm just going to say uh, you asked about things that are different here for additional information. I just want to notice one thing that's been kind of consistent um, in Thessalonians. It said, it's going to come like a thief in the night. In Peter, in Second Peter, it's going to come like a thief in the night. And Jesus, at the end of Matthew 24, you're not going to know, it's going to come like a thief in the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's consistent throughout all the passages. And that's the con. Matthew 24 is kind of sets the stage for what we read in Matthew 25. So it's all connected. There. Yeah. Good. So what we really want to illustrate by kind of going through those passages is that there's certainly a lot of meat 
in those passages, lots of things we could discuss and, and other things that we're not going to have time to talk about today. But if you just want to kind of make a list of like, what does Jesus and what do the Bible authors say is going to happen on the day, you can make a pretty, you know, pretty accurate list and get a really good idea of like the actual events of the second coming by just reading through those passages. And you can add some other passages in first Corinthians 15, uh, Hebrews set sections in Hebrews. There are lots of other areas to go kind of see what is going to actually happen on that day. So I want to just take those things that we've noticed and just like talk about them and maybe compare them really briefly to some wrong ideas or misconceptions about that day. And you guys can think about it. I'm going to start with one. Um, and I'm actually going to start with what um, Scott just pointed out, that consistent in all of those passages, Jesus says it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be unexpected. There is a really big idea that's been popular, I think, for a long time, and even popular, you know, back whenever Peter was writing, that people really want to know, like, when is it going to happen? Um, or it hasn't happened yet. That must mean it's not happening. But this idea of, like, trying to figure out the exact day and like reading the signs and reading the times and like oh the end times are here it's only you know a matter of time the bible discusses the second coming of jesus as something that's going to happen soon um we are you know i think in the last days the bible mentions that kind of thing multiple times but as far as like knowing like um you know jesus is going to come back next tuesday <laughs> like you have seven days left and like we can we can discern that that's the exact day that jesus will come back it's just not possible like we can't know the exact day and it's not really for us to know god has made it very clear that he's not going to let us know the exact day that he will come back and so trying to waste our time by figuring out when the exact day is um is not what god expects for us to do and actually there's a lot of wisdom in god not revealing his exact day that he's going to come back because if we knew exactly when jesus was going to come back like if we knew jesus is coming back on uh you know march 13th of 2022 um, what would people do with that? They would probably put it off and procrastinate and then wait until March 12th to, you know, go around and, and do what God expects for them to do um, and not live constantly ready like what Jesus wants us to do and the, the Bible authors say. Um, so we don't need to waste our time by trying to figure out the exact time. It's been abundantly clear that only the Father really knows when that's going to be. Um, it's not for us to try to dissect and decipher all of that. Go ahead, Scott. I just want to throw out a little bit of history. Uh, this fellow named William Miller, uh, who decided that the Lord was going to come back in, I think it was 1843. I may have a couple of these dates off. Uh, it didn't happen. Somebody recalculated and said, oh, it's 1844. Didn't happen. Uh, I've got a prophecy pointing to the coming of the Lord by 1888. Didn't happen. Another book says, uh, 1914 didn't happen so they put it on another book 1915 didn't happen so they decided it happened in 1914 but invisibly um got a book uh says it published in 1921 millions now living will never die um got a book from the 30s that says it looks like maybe mussolini is the antichrist i've got a book 88 reasons why jesus will come if by 1988 got another book 101 reasons why Jesus will come by 1988 and in the last five or ten years there's been a couple of spectacular failures in, in the news and billboards and buses and stuff where somebody picked an exact date and of course nonsense over and over right yeah yeah so that's something that happens a lot 
we don't need to worry ourselves with like when exactly is it going to happen, but just know it's going to happen. So live prepared. That's the message of the, of the gospel. Um, so uh, what are some other misconceptions based like what are what are the facts and like how is that kind of falsely understood? Um, what do you guys see in some of the things that we've discussed? Well, maybe, maybe this is a little different what you're asking for. Um, but there are there are a surprising number of people, I think, um, who claim to follow Jesus and follow the Bible. But they they believe that. Uh, Jesus is not really coming again. Uh, there's not going to be this, this judgment scene that's been described in Matthew 25, that what he intends for us to do is to um, do the best we can now, loving our neighbors and sort of spread gospel truth and, and grace sort of in this um, self-described sense of, of grace, uh, but they don't, they don't picture judgment. Uh, and I think typically that, that's a, a Western civilization kind of thing. Um, part of the, the, the problem there is we, we don't see the need for judgment sometimes, is we don't see uh, the comfort that comes with God destroying evil because uh, maybe we're blessed to live in a country or situation where we're not uh, surrounded by some of the evil that's in the world and other places. But there's real evil and it really needs to be put down. And it, it's bitten me. I've committed some of it and it needs to be destroyed and it needs to be dealt with. Um, so Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge. He doesn't want to destroy Second Peter 3, um, but he's going to um, because he allows us to choose. So I, th I think that's one of the misconceptions that I'm hearing more and more is that hell is really um, earth. Hell is this place we live now and it's just it's so bad. Um, and so what we're trying to escape is all of the hellish things that happen around us. And then when we go to heaven, we escape it. And that's, that's not really the picture we see in the Bible. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll add a little bit to that. Um, some misconceptions about like hell and about the eternal judgment that's talked about. Uh, I, I've run into more and more people that have this idea that the eternal judgment is like not eternal. Um, that it's, it's something that's going to end or that you can like experience for a little while and then like maybe transfer to eternal life, you know, after the, after the judgment happens. Um, I think that's just a misunderstanding of the text, uh, especially like you can just read one verse. One of the verses that we read in Matthew 25, verse 46 mm -hmm. says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Everyone that I talk to understands eternal life as eternal. <laughs> like that's forever, right? In the same breath, Jesus says, there is eternal punishment. If we're, if we're going to understand eternal life as being eternal, we need to understand eternal punishment as being eternal as well. Uh, so yeah, so that's good. Um, what else? What are some other kind of just basic facts from the text that we've seen that, you know, different misconceptions get wrong? <clears throat> um, Scott, your Scott, yes. Can we bring another passage in that'll also do that? Yeah, go ahead. This one. Let's look at it in 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15 is written because some of the brethren at Corinth are saying there's not going to be a resurrection of the dead. It's not going to happen. And coming back to Justin's point, there's a lot of people now today saying, yeah, there's not going to be a resurrection of the dead. Not going to be a second coming. Not going to that's that's not going to happen. 
if that was right, then why was Paul concerned that people had this idea and why does he correct it? And so he begins 1 Corinthians 15 saying, he reminds him, he said, now remember the gospel that I preached to you, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. That's the gospel I preached to you. And he said, there were witnesses of his being resurrected from the dead. That leads him up to verse 12, where he says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And he starts talking about if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead. If he wasn't resurrected from the dead, it's all pointless. But then he backs up to verse 20, he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who fall asleep. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all died, even in Christ, who are Christ's when? In the verse 23. At his coming. At his coming. Then the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he has put in the end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And what's the last enemy to be defeated? Death. 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 And as it says at the end of the chapter, death is defeated when we are raised from the dead. So the reign of Christ is not some future thing on earth where all the enemies have been killed. It says in Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand and rule in the midst of your enemies. enemies. Jesus is ruling not on the throne in Jerusalem. He's ruling now at the right hand of God in the midst of enemies. And the last enemy to be abolished is death at the resurrection of his kingdom to the Father. So we had a um, a question come in, uh, interesting question, and we'll see if you guys want to deal with this um, right now or we can maybe plan on working through this passage later on. Kind of a difficult passage, I think, that's being referenced. Um, He just said, if when you die, there is no opportunity to repent, how is Jesus able to go to the dead and preach? And then parentheses an opportunity to repent after death. I think that you're referencing First Peter chapter 3, um, where it talks about Christ suffering once for sins, and then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, PJ, but I think that's the passage that you're talking about. Um, do you guys want to address that now? Or that's kind of a in-depth passage. Um, maybe we can put that off for like a future show, or, or you guys can do what you want with that. I, I can maybe give just a, a a quick 30 second uh, yeah. rundown. Yeah, I, I think there, there, there are two good options uh, for that passage in First Peter uh, chapter 3. Either he's saying that the spirit of Jesus was working through Noah and other prophets in the Old Testament and through them was preaching about the truth to come. Um, or he's just saying that Jesus was proclaiming the good news and we often think proclaiming the good news, preaching the good news means giving people an opportunity to repent. Uh, but it's also just proclaiming that Jesus is victor and that he has won. Uh, and I think both of those ideas, either that the spirit of Christ was working through Old Testament prophets like Noah, or that Christ himself um, in his death and then resurrection is proclaiming victory, that he has won 
uh, and is going to be victorious. Um, and that, that is the gospel. Uh, when, we, when we proclaim the gospel, we're not just hoping that people will hear it and repent. We're also saying that whether we repent or not, Jesus is the winner. And there's a going along with that the, the possibility of the second one i'll just mention this there's a couple of different words in the new testament at least for preaching one is to evangelize and in that word is the gospel evangelion the good news and so proclaiming the good news uh is one word another word is just proclamation and it can be used in Jesus preaching or the apostles preaching on earth, but it doesn't necessarily include the idea in it of good news. In the passage here in Second in, in first, uh, first Peter doesn't say it's not the uh, evangelized word, it's the proclamation word, which could be one or the other, but it, it, it's it's not the it's not the definitive of proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, yeah, good question. So if you have more questions, more thoughts about that or questions about that, um, you can let us know. Justin, were you gonna say something else? Uh, not about First Peter 3, but yeah. uh, it's a good question. Yeah. But about First Corinthians 15, something that uh, Scott was pointing out, uh, one of the things I think, think we're seeing here, uh, I'm hearing it less and less, um, but then occasionally I'll hear something about it, about you know the coming of Jesus and tribulation rapture and a thousand year reign of jesus on the earth uh when you read first Corinthians 15 and the last enemy to be destroyed is death um kind of two points on this if if that's you know that, that's what's going to happen then the resurrection is going to occur and there's not going to be any more fighting going on there's not going to be like this impending uh end this this grand finale um that's pictured as the resurrection jesus reigns for a time and then there's going to come the end it, it looks like this is all happening right at the same time. Um, and you pointed out Matthew 25 seems to put all those things together. First Corinthians 15 does, First Thessalonians 4 does, and 5. Um, so this idea that there's going to be this um, kingdom that's sort of stationed on earth with an earthly uh, headquarters to it um, that, that was popularized years ago, um, Left Behind series, maybe some are familiar with that. Uh, that that doesn't seem to fit the structure that we see in the Bible. Um, but kind of in, in connection with that, I think one of the ideas, and it's maybe from a, a different perspective on Bible teaching, um, and maybe it's just like Looney Tunes um, kind of thing, like when somebody dies, an animal gets dropped on their head and their, their spirit goes up to heaven, they're wearing wings and a halo and off they go. Um, that. The, to, to be with the Lord forever means that you're a disembodied spirit. Uh, this is a really common understanding of what heaven is. Uh, but the Bible teaches this restoration of the body, this, this renewal, the resurrection. Um, I think Romans, Romans chapter 8 calls it the revealing of, of the sons of God or the adoption of the sons of God. And so there's this, this beautiful restoral uh, of of who we are made to be. And it doesn't mean it's gonna be my, my flesh and blood, but I'm gonna be transformed to be, to be able to live eternally with God. And, and so all of what I am, all of what God's made me to be, is gonna be brought into his presence eternally. Yeah, and I think along that idea, 1 Corinthians 15 is a helpful passage to, to see and understand that, but also 2 Corinthians 5, um, Paul makes it really clear 
that you know we, we don't want to be unclothed and he uses unclothed. this this idea of like wearing a tent and the tent of our bodies but we wish to be further clothed and so like, yes we don't want to just be the spirit we we want this new body that's going to be given to us so. scott nope oh, you might yeah mike I'm using here. I keep muting. Uh, I want to read a couple of comments that have come in, and we're about out of time. Make one quick comment. Um, uh, Patrick had written, or is it here? Uh, oh. oh, yeah. The second coming, resurrection, into the world, judgment day, all happen together. The last day. In fact, if you go through the Gospel of John and watch for descriptions of the last day, that's pretty interesting. Uh, he also points out that that Millerite movement from the 1840s is the origin of both, uh, or one of the origins of both Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Seventh-day Adventists. And I just wanted to throw this out there. As illustrated by the First Peter 3 passage, sometimes you'll have a passage that you know what it means. Boom. Kind of like, thou shalt not steal. What does that probably mean? Don't steal. Don't take stuff that's not yours. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, take the simple passages and start there. Sometimes you have a passage that because of the wording and some ambiguity in the language or something, it might mean A, B, C, or D. Don't jump to the assumption that it means this and ignore the simple passages. You start with the clearance. Kind of like if you've got a clear glass window and a stained glass window. Like if you start with the book of Revelation and you look through the stained glass, oh, I think that's a rhinoceros coming. You step over to the clear glass window and oh, that's the postman. Okay. <laughs> Interpret the latter by the first. In with lost him. We, may have, we yeah. may have lost him he was making a good point yeah yeah there you go that's fine so yeah so so pick the the simple um thing really good really good point um okay um so there's a lot more that we could say about that about the second coming um a, lot, a whole lot more content that we could look at in the scriptures if you have more questions about that um or you'd like us to discuss some more on our show we'd be happy to do that um, but the point of what we really want to try to get across is as far as like the, the events that will happen, it's pretty simple to understand and to see in the scriptures, this is what it will be like. And so if you ever come across something that sounds a little bit different or sounds a little bit off, um, you know, measure it with the scriptures, compare what you hear with what the scriptures say, and it'll be relatively simple and easy to see like, yeah, that is going to happen or no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Um, and there are quite a few misconceptions about the second coming of Jesus. Some of those misconceptions has some pretty serious, you know, um, uh, implications of them that can really hinder um, the, the truth and, and hinder what people need to do uh, according to what the gospel teaches and what the Bible teaches. But always measure that with what has been revealed, what Jesus said about that, what Paul said about that, what Peter and other uh, of the Bible authors said. Uh, so... Uh, anything else that you guys, final points you want to make before we wrap up this afternoon? Good, thank you. All right, cool. Um, so like I said, if you have any further questions about that, you can visit our website and uh, ask those questions, biblequest.tv. Uh, put your name and email and address. 
uh, in there and, uh, and your question. We'll be happy to get to that later on. Uh, or any other Bible questions that you have uh, that you'd like us to discuss on some other topics. Uh, we're happy to do those as well. We want to talk about what you all want to talk about. So uh, let us know what your questions are. But that's all that we have for this week. And so we will plan on seeing everyone next week. Lord willing.